Hello and welcome back to the One of 20 podcast. My name is Jonathan. I'm your host. I'm your executive producer. I have a rare disease and this podcast is all about rare diseases. So if you have a rare disease, if you're a caregiver, if you're someone who's interested in learning more, or if you're my mother, welcome back. So today we have Dr. Tommy Martin on the podcast and I cannot wait I literally have, been, this has been an interview a year in the making. Um, we have Dr. Tommy Martin. He has two plus million followers on TikTok. He has Instagram. He's on YouTube. He's everywhere. So before I get into that, I kind of want to give an update on my life and what I've been doing and things like that. So this episode was supposed to go on October 7th, but that did not happen because I went on vacation to Washington, D.C. I took myself on a mini trip and I said, you know what? Like, I'll post it when I get there. Everything will be fine. Nope, did not happen. And I was spending time with family and I I just was enjoying myself that I was like, you know what? This podcast episode deserves my time and attention and it deserves something that isn't rushed because this is such an important interview to me that I needed to take the time to make sure that it was well-crafted and well-articulated and that I was able to share Tommy Oliver's story well and properly. So that's why we're here today. I'm recording this on Friday. This will be released on Sunday. And this kind of has brings me to a message that I've learned in my life. I think in life, and for people who are chronically ill or who are not chronically ill, and just people in general, that there's this made-up timeline that we have to abide by. And what I mean by that is that I'm 23, I'm going to be 24 in April, and I want to follow this timeline. It's this timeline that I've created in my head because I'm going off of what others that I know in my personal life are doing. I want to be out of my house. I want to be on my own. I want to be X, Y, and Z, so on and so forth. I have all of these different goals in my life, and they're kind of mirroring what other people in my life are doing. And I've kind of realized that my path does not have to be the same as others. It doesn't. And I think that's a really hard lesson that I've had to learn. I think that is something that's taken me a while to learn that my path can be parallel to someone. It doesn't need to be linear. I can do the same things at my own pace. And I think that's a really important message that I've learned. And I think that is something that I'm still learning. And I'm learning this with this podcast too. I remember telling a friend who was asking about the podcast and why I haven't posted in a while. Well, back in the winter, January, February, March was kind of the worst time of my life for me. A myriad of different things ended up happening. And all I kept telling myself was this too shall pass. I won't get into what happened because most of it ended up being rubbish and going away, what have you. If you really want to know, I could probably start a Patreon and spill all the tea and make you all pay for what's going on. But honestly, I was right. This passed. And then I kind of got a new job, got occupied with that. And my grandma died, which was so sad. And I'm going to do a whole episode on grief and loss because that hit me really hard. And then I found my way again. I was stable in my job. I was having a good social life and things were really looking up for me. And now I'm in a place where my life has kind of zened. And what I mean by zend, it's just kind of stabilized. And hopefully, knock on wood, I'm standing, sitting next to a table, that it stays that way. But this year has been such a year of reflection and growth. And I've been through so much. And I haven't let it broke my spirits, or break my spirits, excuse me. I've kind of risen above it all with good friends, good a good mother, and a lot of therapy. It has really, really helped me. Now I'm here. It's a Friday afternoon in October. I'm working for a big company. I'm, I just ended my day and I hopped on the podcast and so much good is happening in my life. The leaves are falling, it's sunny out, it's fall, I'm going apple picking this weekend. So there's so much good going on in my life that I can't help to share that joy with you all. And if you're feeling like you are not having joy in your life and you are not, and you're in a hard place, know that it will pass. 
that whatever you're going through, whether it's emotionally or physically, and especially with the medical community um, and the rare disease community, that a lot of times that things look so dark and there doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel. But that is far from true. There's gonna be hard days, there are gonna be days where you just wanna punch the air. And I'm not saying you have to be happy-go-lucky. Trust me, I'm not always happy-go-lucky. But I think the important thing is to find the positive, to find the good in each day. And I've started to do for the season to do my pockets of peace, something that brings joy into my day. And after my interview with Tommy, I'll be sharing that. But for now, this is a perfect transition of someone who has been through so much, getting his medical degree, passing his boards, having a son with a rare disease, and doing it all with the positive spirit. Further ado, Dr. Tommy Martin, TikTok's own famous doctor. He's a dad. He's a doctor. He's a husband. And most of all, he's a good person. So this interview was an absolute blast. And I was beaming from cheek to cheek after interviewing it. So I hope you all enjoyed this as much as I did. So as I mentioned earlier today, I have Dr. Tommy Martin. We've been trying to do this for a year back and forth. He is a internist. He just started working in Boston and his son, Oliver, as I mentioned, has a rare disease called Lamb Schaefer syndrome. Only 50 people in the world have it, correct? Well, so if you look on Wikipedia, it does say 50, but that was last updated in 2018. So since that time, we know that there's about 400 children in the world with it right now. Wow. That is, that's still extremely rare. I mean, and first of all, welcome. Um, so can you like give us a little bit about your background and you're a doctor, you're on TikTok. Um, just introduce yourself. Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, just thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Uh, it means a lot, especially talking about something that's so close to our hearts and our family. Um, but so I'm a doctor of internal medicine and pediatrics. So I, um, practice both adult medicine and pediatric medicine. I'm currently working as a hospitalist at Boston Children's University and Beth Israel Deaconess. Um, outside of my life in the hospital, I have a lot of other hobbies. I am very passionate about health and fitness, and I have a personal training business called Strong Docs. Um, I'm also very active on social media, um, TikTok and Instagram and YouTube, making content really about my life and hopefully to encourage, inspire, motivate, and educate as many people as I possibly can while showing my life as a doctor, my um, life trying to be healthy and qualify for the Ironman World Championships, um, and just raise our wonderful son uh, together with my wife, who's also a pediatrician. Oh my God, you really do it all. How do you, I got to ask, I had a whole list of questions, but I've always wondered, how do you do it all? How do you, and I know social media can be deceiving and I'm sure that like there are days where you probably want to pull out your hair, but like, how do you, how do you do it all? How do you balance being a doctor, which is a lot of training, takes up a lot of your time being, doing the triathlons, your personal fitness and time for family. How do you do it all? To be honest, uh, first things first is have a very supportive wife um, who has similar hobbies as you. Um, right. There's definitely no way I could do even a fraction of what I do without having a wife who is very supportive and um, very helpful with all of it and encourages me um, to chase all of my dreams, goals, aspirations. Um, it also helps that she has a lot of the same hobbies as I do. So she also does triathlons, marathons, and things of that nature. So I'd say that is the first thing. The second part would be having a very strict schedule. So I maintain my schedule pretty much year round. Um, and that's waking up at 4 a.m., going to bed at 9 p.m., um, trying to get as much done in the time that I call the golden hours, 4 a.m. to 6 a.m., while the rest of the world is sleeping, including my yes. sweet baby boy. Um, so maximizing those golden hours. Um, and then while I'm at work, be present at work. And then also when Oliver goes to sleep, that's more time for Phoebe and I to spend time together or to get more training in or work on other things. That's awesome. I wish I had that kind of, I mean, I try to go to the gym at least five days a week, but I wish I kind of had that structure. And going off of that, what made you want to become a doctor? The first question, like what made you, was it something, was it someone, did you consider like first maybe going into like another medical profession? What kind of drove you to be a doctor ultimately? Yeah. You know, so initially I wanted to be a teacher and a coach. Um, my plan was to be a math teacher. I was really good at math, loved it. 
Um, and I wanted to be a coach. I played football, basketball, baseball, and I thought that it'd be a great lifestyle having the summers off. Um, and then I went on a mission trip my senior year in um, high school, I guess it was. Um, and on this mission trip, uh, oh, I got to backtrack. Before that, something else had happened. But so I went on a mission trip and then I'll just kind of tell the story a little backwards. Went on a mission trip and on this mission trip, this pastor um, like did a sermon about what God's plans were for us, what, um, you know, what he had in store for us and different things like that. And so I had him pray over me. And when he prayed over me, he said something along the lines is that I believe that God has plans for you to go to many nations and heal people in Jesus's name. Um, and to me, I was like, I don't know about all that. Like I am pretty set on being a teacher and a coach, but you know, thank you. Um, well, I went back home and I, my uncle had bought me a new laptop that um, I was transferring all of this stuff from my old laptop onto it. And I saw this audio file and this is the initial story that I forgot to tell you. And so I pulled up this audio, audio file and started listening to it. Well, when I was younger, maybe like 16, 17 years old, or like a couple of years before that, um, I was working with children with autism and was like kind of acting like their big brother. Well, right. one of the times there's this woman who stopped me and she said, um, Tommy, I know you don't know me and we've never met before, but I feel like God wants me to tell you something. Could you record this on your phone? I was like, what? <laughs> who's this creepy woman asking me to record something? On right. So I do it. And <laughs> when I did, she said, uh, Tommy, like I said, you don't know me, but I truly believe that God is going to use you. Um, to heal people in Jesus's name and you'll go all around the world doing this. And at that time I, you know, thought this lady was crazy. It was out of her mind. But right. Then when I went back and transferred that stuff from my old laptop to my new laptop after going on that mission trip and listening to that audio, I was like, wow, you know, like maybe I am supposed to pursue medicine. And then, so from there I went into deep prayer about it and then ultimately decided that I believe that was the plans that God had for me and went full steam ahead. That, that's incredible. I think it just, it's one of those things where you're like, in that moment, you're like, this is what I'm meant to do. And I'm sure the journey hasn't been easy. I'm sure that being a doctor, it's very rigorous from what I understand. And it just, how do you think though, being a doctor, how do you think that translate into being a father? And what I mean, I know pediatrics is kind of your specialty going into Oliver, your son who has Lamb Schaefer. Do you think that having a son with such a specific condition, um, do you think it's helpful you being a doctor, you can kind of point different things out and like apply what you learn at work and like what you've learned in school and what you deal with at work um to your son and kind of point out what not warning signs but like signs that he might have what he has yeah you know that's a really great question and i'd say that there's pros and cons to it um the cons i'll talk about first which i don't really experience but my wife does a lot like if he has a sniffle she thinks he's gonna have the worst case scenario like a terrible pneumonia or something mm -hmm. you know and so like being in medicine you know all the terrible things you know right. the good things too but you also know all the scary things so like it makes your mind go to worst case scenario instead of like what's most common like oh no he probably just has a virus and it's gonna go away in a day you know and so i think that's like the cons of it but then i will say that i do think my wife and i both being physicians definitely aided in us getting Oliver diagnosed as early as we did. And it was because like, if he wasn't rolling at four months of age, I was talking to my pediatrician and <laughs> saying like, we need a physical therapy appointment. You know, he was supposed to do this a day ago. Um, and so like things like that, and just knowing what to look for, I definitely think it helped with getting early intervention set up and getting his diagnosis and getting him in therapies, literally as early as possible, even like, so Oliver, one of the things with his syndrome is strabismus, which is where your eyes cross and that should stop around four months of age. Right. And so his didn't, and they were still crossing. Um, and so since they were still crossing, we got, we, you know, we saw an ophthalmologist immediately. And so knowing those things definitely, I think have helped with him having the syndrome. And then also just the aspect of, of it being a doctor and you don't have to be a doctor. You could be anything in the healthcare field or even just being a mom. Um, but I think learning to care for people and sacrifice, because being a doctor, you sacrifice so much of your time. Right. And you sacrifice so many hours for care for someone else that I think it brings about a selflessness in you that is very beneficial in becoming a parent. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's from what I've seen on your, like your TikTok and your Instagram that you're working, you're pulling like 80, 90 hour weeks, correct? 96 hour weeks. Well, so this past 10 days is a little rough, but during residency, it was close to 80 hours over the last, my first 10 day stretch of attending hood, I worked 130 hours. Um, so yeah, it, it's been busy. How do you though, and I know Oliver has a two parent household. How do you, is there certain care that he needs that's extensive? Like, do you, I know he goes to school, but like prior to him going to school, was he getting like, I know for me personally, before I went to preschool, I went to a special needs preschool where a lot of my condition and how I developed in my early toddler years was very similar to Oliver's. So my parents had um, physical therapists come in occupational therapists come in. He receives that at school, but before that, did you seek outside care or did you kind of wait until he was at school age to kind of explore those um, different therapies? Yeah. So actually in Arkansas, their special education is incredible. He went to a school called the Allen School in Lower Rock, Arkansas, Mm -hmm. which was truly the biggest blessing because they'll take children with special needs as early as six weeks old. Wow. And so, and they do physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy. They do it all there in house at the school. So he was getting the absolute maximum amount of therapy that is allowed by the state um, from as soon as he's from about six months old until we moved away from Arkansas. And so we were very fortunate to have that capacity for him. And then outside of the, honestly, because he was getting like almost he was getting nine hours of therapy a week at school. We didn't do outside of school therapy just because we figured he was already getting what the state would say it would be like the maximum. And so we didn't do more outside of that. Um, but I mean, we could have, but we were like, we want to spend time with him and not make him, you know, be in more therapies. It could be very rigorous. I mean, I remember my time and I was in, for those who don't know, I was in occupational and physical therapy and speech therapy from when I was about 24 months. So about two years, because I didn't learn, I didn't really start talking until I was, I want to say two and a half, three, and I didn't start walking until I was like three and a half. So everything, once I went into my coma was kind of pushed back to the side, like it um, really like. uh, delayed my developmental like skills, my gross motor skills. Will he have to be, I was in those therapies until I was in eighth grade. Will he have to be in those therapies all through school and all through his life? Or is Lamb Schaefer something that he could kind of learn to live with? Like, how is that, what is it going to look like in the future for him? Yeah. So, you know, there's not a ton of research on it. There's actually only one paper and that's back when there was only 30 something diagnoses, Mm -hmm. but out of the 400 that we have now, we're all kind of in a Facebook group. And it does appear that all of the children get therapies throughout high school. And the main goal is to help them to reach their fullest potential. And then Mm -hmm. also hopefully one day live independently. Um, now, whether that's possible or not, you know, only time will tell and right. believe that the sky's the limit and will help him to achieve whatever he wants to achieve. But it does appear that um, children with Lamb Schaefer syndrome require therapies all throughout schooling. That is one. Luckily, that schools offer therapies like this. Oh my gosh, yes. I think I think that's a big thing because outside therapies can be extremely expensive, and I think there's a lot of different factors. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing is, is that I very interested to hear about other rare genetic conditions because personally, for me, I told you I didn't get diagnosed until 2019. They kind of gave me a general diagnosis, and there was nobody like me do does anybody like you've seen in the Facebook group are they all in the United States is it worldwide what is the demographic for Lamb Schaefer look like yeah I'd say that it's becoming worldwide that there are diagnoses um I know that in, in Australia and like some you know some other places outside of the United States but I think as the disease as more awareness is brought about the disease I think that more people will be diagnosed with it because it would be very easy to diagnose children with Lamb Schaefer syndrome of, as having autism. So I think there's probably a lot of misdiagnoses right. and that as more awareness is brought about this, that we'll see a lot more children diagnosed with Lamb Schaefer's. One of the big differences is Lamb Schaefer syndrome. Most of the children with it are extremely social. Like they are the social butterfly. They want attention and to be with friends and to be playing with their friends. Whereas in autism, 
these social um, skills lagging is like one of the cardinal features, you know? And so I think that's like one of the big differences. I have, my brother's on the autism spectrum. Okay. Very, he, when we were growing up, I mean, he's about, I think he's about your age or maybe a year or two younger, but when he was getting diagnosed, it wasn't necessarily mainstream. I think now it's way more destigmatized because at first Mm -hmm. the school and very similar to my diagnosis, just like comparing the roots to how we got to where we were is that my mom had trouble with my brother and I, because my brother, they just thought it was a phase initially. And this was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then coincidentally, I was also, I was born in the late 90s. And then I was getting my diagnosis at the same time he was. And everybody thought with me that my mom works in healthcare, but she works more on the management side. She doesn't, she's not like a practitioner or anything. She works with um, adults who have, um, who are differently abled and who have traumatic brain injuries. So she works more on that side of things. But back then she was just um, a young mom who had her degree in marketing and everybody said, oh, you spoil him. He eats too much. I was a preemie. Um, I was born a month early. My umbilical cord was actually wrapped around my neck. Luckily that didn't cause me any damage. What had happened was, is that both of my parents who grew up one stop sign away from each other, both had the gene I don't know genetics, I always butcher this, but both had like, both carried the gene that gave me what I have. And it's extremely rare for both parents to have the gene from my understanding. Um, But that's how I got to my diagnosis. And then I went into my coma and then one thing led to another and it all snowballed into me eventually getting my diagnosis. But for my mom, it was very difficult because everybody around here just said, you spoil him too much, as I said, or he just needs to be, he just needs to cry it out, things like that. And I think she had her intuitions of um, being able to tell that I was not well. So Mm -hmm. I definitely think that's just very, um, it's very interesting how you get to a diagnosis. And did you have to go see like a specialist, a geneticist? Um, How did getting from being Oliver's parents, taking off your doctor hat to being um, his, just his parents. How did you, did you go to his pediatrician who referred you to somebody? How did you come to the diagnosis besides looking at the symptoms? You found the symptoms and then how did you proceed there? Yeah. So, you know, honestly, so as soon as he was born, I did a physical exam on him being the pediatrician that I am. Which um, I have I to. Some, yeah, right. Um, I noticed some unique quirky things. Um, so that he had like a bulbous nose, they call it, which I kind of do. So I was like, yeah, that's probably nothing. My nose is kind of shaped like that. Um, he had extremely long fingers, extremely large feet. Um, he had a unique sacral dimple. Um, he had knee dimples and elbow dimples. He had, um, let me see what else. Those were like the main things initially. And so I asked the pediatrician there, I was like, hey, can we get an ultrasound of a sacrum? He has a dimple there and just some other things. And so they did and it was normal. And then all the other unique things are like, you know, yeah, it's, it's there, but it's probably just a normal variant, you know? Well, then Oliver, despite eating absurd amount of breast milk was not gaining weight, like at all, um, was in the first percentile. Yeah, it was yeah. very small. Um, and so that led us to, you know, kind of more things. And then when he was four months old, he didn't start rolling quite yet. And that's when a kid should start rolling, but they have to be two standard deviations away from what's right to get therapy. So we were denied physical therapy. Um, and then with him still not gaining weight and he wasn't really by six months old, he really wasn't sitting up and he didn't have great head control. And so, um, our pediatrician, noticed that his truncal tone was very lagging. And so she thought we should see neurology and with him not gaining weight and things like that. So neurology, they saw him and kind of agreed with those things and they thought we should see genetics. And then, so we saw genetics. And then when we saw genetics, they did, you know, genetic testing. And when they did that, they found that he had a deletion in the SOX5 gene on chromosome 12. Um, which gives you the diagnosis of Lamb-Schafer syndrome. Now, he had a pretty large deletion, um, actually encoding for, I think, 40-something genes. Um, And thankfully, that really the only one that leads to something significant that we know of right now would be the SOX5 gene. Wow, that is just getting, going through all those hoops just sounds like, 
it sounds like a lot. And did the doctor say, I know when I like, I was, I'm the youngest. So I know my parents didn't have any of this information until a little later in my life, but do you and your wife, do you run the risk of having another child with Lamb Schaefer syndrome? Um, what is that? I know it's genetic. So do you think since you're a young couple and Oliver's your first, um, do you ever like, does that cross your mind that you might have another one? And are you, you're just, what I'm trying to ask is, are you just like kind of prepared just to have another child like Oliver? And do you think, um, do you think that it won't, I'm not going to say easier, but do you think that, um, you'll be able to kind of cut some time once you have another child, if you plan to have another child, do you think you'll be able to cut time to get a diagnosis? Yeah, if, um, a, yeah, those are really good questions. And so the inheritance pattern of Lamb Schaefer syndrome is autosomal dominant. Mm -hmm. And so those who are listening to that may not know what that means. That just means if you carry the gene, you'll pass it down to all of your children and they'll have the diagnosis. Yes. And so technically, um, since Oliver was our first child, if Phoebe and I had it, if we had the trait, then we technically should exhibit symptoms of Lamb Schaefer syndrome. Okay. And now with that being said, there are some people that we found out through the Facebook group that had the gene, but for some reason didn't phenotypically appear to have Lamb Schaefer syndrome right. or didn't look like they had it. And so and there's no right or wrong answer to this. So the parents or whoever's listening, just know that you could do it either way. You could decide not to get testing and be like, we're going to have children regardless. Like we don't care what, we don't even want to know if we have it or not. We're just going to keep having kids. Well, Phoebe and I wanted to know, um, and we still plan to keep having kids. We just wanted to be prepared. If one of us did carry it, that we right. pass it down to all of our children. So through our genetic testing, um, neither Phoebe or I carry the deletion in the SOX5 gene. And so it was a de novo or sporadic mutation that Oliver had that led to his diagnosis. But what this does mean, if Oliver is able one day um, to have children, then he would pass it down to all of his children. I had, I, I said earlier, I don't understand, I didn't understand how genetics work for a while. So that's an excellent explanation. And will he, so I know that you kind of talked about his adolescence and what it looks like right now and for the future, what it's going to look like, but will he one day, um, and you may not know the answer to this, but will he one day be able to like live outside of the home and like kind of start a life of his own? Will he be able to like hold a job? Because I know with some rare genetic disorders, it, like San Filippo syndrome is the first one that comes to my mind where they like patients exhibit a certain sense of normalcy until they or their body begins to fail. Is that the case in Oliver's situation or will he be able to pursue a somewhat normal life? Yeah, so from what we know, and again, there's limited number of people with this, that we know that they will most likely live a long and normal, like normal life in the terms of with their genetic um, delays or with their developmental delays. So his lifespan is not shortened by having Lamb Schaefer syndrome. So that's the first thing. The second thing would be what... Um, I'd say few end up living independently, like completely on their own there. I think there's one or two maybe in the Facebook group. And I could even be wrong on that. Maybe one or two that live completely independently, but chances are that he will need aid, um, whether it be from Phoebe and I, or to live in a house with, you know, with aids that help him. Um, right. But fortunately enough, when Phoebe and I bought our house, we did buy a house that if need be, we do have a like in-law suite that if Oliver were to live, need to live with us forever, that we are prepared for that as well. Um, and so we don't know. I mean, we would love that if Oliver could one day live on his own and live independently, but if he can't, then we will cross that bridge when we get there and um, we'll love and support him and all of his dreams um, just very closely from our own home. <laughs> that that's the exact way to do it I mean that's exactly how my mom is luckily I'm fortunate enough where even though I have my medical issues mine are where I'm able to move out mom if you're listening I know I told you this morning I want to move out um <laughs> but I think for me and I think it's I think rare disease is a spectrum because I'm one of those people that will be able to pursue somewhat of a normal life I mean I have a million doctor's appointments to go to like every six months, it's kind of this rotating schedule. And I'm sure it's the same thing for Oliver, but what's your message 
to parents out there who may be struggling, who are in your shoes or who are where you were at a year ago finding out a diagnosis. What have you learned so far from being Oliver's dad and being someone, being a doctor's side, um, as a human being, what you've learned from all of this? Yeah, and um, man, like the diagnosis was so hard. Uh, like Phoebe and I had no idea what it meant. We didn't know what to expect. We didn't know how serious it was. We were literally scared to death. And so kind of like my mantra throughout all of this is that Oliver's diagnosis does not define his potential. And so for all the parents out there that might be having a child or even someone that's diagnosed with a rare disorder, just hold on to that mantra and just know that you know, your diagnosis or your child's diagnosis doesn't define their potential and that they can accomplish anything that they set their mind to. And with you in their corner, even as hard as it is some days, that you, you know, encouraging them and helping them to reach their full, full potential, um, I think will surprise the world with what they can accomplish. I know Oliver, man, he inspires me every single day. The fact that he walked at 18 months and fact that he started crawling on his first birthday and just everything he accomplishes just inspires me endlessly and his determination and tenacity and passion and love um yeah just all of that so long story short your diagnosis doesn't define your potential absolutely not that was beautiful I mean, I'm blown away. I mean, that was that was beautiful. And I think I feel inspired too. I know I feel inspired, I should say, because sometimes I let my diagnosis define me. And I know that you have um, kind of shared Oliver's story on social media and you've shared similar sentiments like the one you just shared, which I, I can't go over. It was beautiful. How do you have people reach out to you? How do you how did you decide to share Oliver's diagnosis on social media? Because I know sometimes that people like to kind of keep some things private. And I know that I'm sure there are things that you keep private, but how did you decide, like, I want to share it like this, this will inspire people like Oliver is someone that I want to share as an example, like he's my bundle of joy. How did you come to that point where you just wanted to share a story? You know, ultimately, it just came down to like, if Phoebe and I wanted to, we could paint a picture that our life is perfect and right. that we're two doctors and that we have a perfect child and that nothing goes wrong and that life is just as surreal as social media can make it. But like, we didn't want to fake that, paint that fake picture. And we wanted people to know like, look, life is hard and you get thrown curveballs. You could do everything right and still get a, a hand dealt to you that you never expected. But what matters is not the hand that you were dealt, but how you deal with that hand. And so I think being able to show the world that just because we had a child with an extremely rare di diagnosis that we never expected in a million years, it doesn't change the outcome and it doesn't change how beautiful of a story that you can write. Um, and so we just wanted to be real open and honest with people and let them know that, yeah, even two physicians that, you know, try their hardest, things happen and you just roll with the punches and go with it. That is the best mantra. I mean, you're just spitting out straight inspiration here. That is, I think it's the best mantra because it's the truth. And I think you are one of the people and why I really wanted to have you on the podcast. And I think a lot of parents who have children with rare disease just keep it very honest. But I think social media is a blessing and a curse. And I always say this because sometimes you can paint this picture. Like I know people that paint this perfect picture and things aren't perfect behind the paintbrush. But I also think you're one of those people that I was super inspired. You came up, you kept coming up on my For You page like two years ago. And then I started following you. And then I was like, he keeps it really real. Like, he's like, I'm a doctor, I'm a dad. Like you showed all of these identities of yourself. And I think that's just super important, keeping it authentic and real. And have people from social media reached out to you who have besides myself like have reached out to you about like rare disease stuff or saying like hey i know i'm not a doctor but i went through something similar like have you received messages like that i know you receive a lot of messages you have a big social media following what has the um what has the feedback looked like about sharing oliver's story and what have you heard yeah it's been extremely positive i'd say i've had <laughs> I don't know, hundreds upon hundreds of people that have, you know, children with rare diseases that, 
you know, we all struggle at times and um, just the ability to know that me sharing in their struggles and sharing my struggles with them helps us all to kind of move forward and cope with it and um, come to a new normalcy about it. And at the same time, um, help our children to achieve all that they can. And so I think that it's been a very vastly positive experience and hopefully that I'm able to continue to help people as they're dealing with it. And I know that Oliver's condition is, you know, I would say that it's mild compared to, you know, other things that people are battling. Like I have friends that, you know, their child will never, you know, most likely, I mean, miracles happen, but, you know, will never be able to speak and are on, you know, oxygen support all the time and will never probably be able to walk and you know so there's all different degrees of this but I think that regardless like I said before regardless of the hand that you're dealt it what matters is how you deal with that hand and to see other parents that you know have it much much worse than Phoebe and I do um, still be able to be so positive and uplifting and sharing their stories so I think it's just like a whole community of people inspiring one another and so I think it's been very positive. That is, that's the best. I think being positive to a degree is, it's just the best feeling because it kind of helps you through like the darkest days. I mean, how do you think your, I know you mentioned your faith and I know that you're a very open-minded individual. How has your faith helped you navigate some of life's rocky roads, especially getting your diagnosis with Oliver? You mentioned that it was difficult. Did you really lean on your faith? And I know you even mentioned that you and your wife have are under the same like scope of religion, but have different um, denominations. So how did you kind of navigate through your faithfulness and your spirituality through Oliver's diagnosis? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to share a couple of stories, but honestly, it uh, was the rock that it was the foundation that made us not crumble, <laughs> just to be completely honest. Um, so this is kind of crazy, but so when Oliver was in the womb, he was measuring very, very small. And we found that out at our 20 week appointment. So he was measuring in like the 0.9 percentile. Um, And so that day that we found out we were, Phoebe was crushed. Like she was really sad and upset because we didn't know, for one, we didn't know if she'd carry the term. Um, We didn't know what the rest of pregnancy would look like. And so with that, um, every night I would read a Bible story to Oliver in Phoebe's belly. And so that night, the next Bible story we read, um, it was about David and Goliath. And the end of it said, it was a little prayer at the end of it and said, um, God, I know you'll use me even though I'm small. And it was like, what? Like, how in the world is that possible? Like, we literally just got this news today. This was the next story. We didn't even look for this. And then that was the prayer at the end of it. And so even at that point, that was just like a reassurance to Phoebe and I that like, look, God's got this. Like, we don't know what this means, but God's in control of this. Well, then after we found out, the day we found out Oliver's diagnosis was a Friday afternoon. We couldn't get a hold of any doctors. We didn't know what it meant. We didn't know how serious this was, but we were obviously distraught. Well, Saturday morning, I had a coffee meeting with a friend um, and I was watching Oliver, so I brought Oliver, and we were sitting in that coffee shop. And I, Phoebe and I made a deal not to tell anyone, right? Because like, we just found out, we don't even know what this means, we didn't want people to know. So I didn't tell my friend, um, but this older man walked up to Oliver and I, and he was like, wow, you have the most beautiful son in the world. I was like, oh, well, thank you, I think so too. And he's like, and I just want you to know everything's gonna be okay. Wow. I was like, excuse me? And he said, just know that whatever you're going through, everything's going to be okay. And like, I obviously just started sobbing. Like I didn't like, didn't know this man, no one else, but Phoebe and I knew what was going on with Oliver. We just found that news out yesterday and some guy comes and tells me that everything's going to be okay. Um, and so that obviously was, you know, just another sign from God saying like, look, I've got you, this is going to be okay. In Oliver's deletion of his chromosome, part of it had the number 17 and part of it had the number 20. The number 17 was all of Phoebe's numbers throughout high school and sports. The number 20 was my number throughout all of high school and all of sports. Now, again, like crazy coincidence, some may say, but to me, it's very hard for me to believe 
that it's all a coincidence. And so, I, anyway, that, so that has to be right. Yeah, it like, just has to be something. It, it just all seems like it fits in perfect. Right. Yeah. Like I, and I know that people have different faiths and maybe don't have any faith at all. But to me, when we got Oliver's chromosomal analysis back, I was like, this was written before he was born. Like this was intricate. Like a creator had to do this because what are the chances that two people in a ginormous world come together, get married, had some stupid sports number of 17, had some stupid sports number of 20, and then have a child with a diagnosis that only 400 people in the world have it, and then have in their genetic makeup, have those numbers that are, you know, changed around or whatever. And so to me, even though it's a crazy coincidence, I truly believe that it was all written by God from God. Um, so to answer your question in a very long story, I think he's been involved in every part of it every step of the way and it's helped us be encouraged i think that's fantastic and i don't think i think that i mean you and i have very similar faiths and beliefs but i'm reading this book right now actually called science from the universe um Mm -hmm. which is more of a generic it's more of a kind of a generic thing rather than a spiritual thing. But what I'm reading in the book right now is that people from the other side, it's like has to do with grief and just like the afterlife send you signs. And it doesn't like, it's kind of up to interpretation. You can believe how the signs are sent. But I think that's very, very similar where 17, 20, I mean, I think that's definitely a sign. And I definitely, I just am, it blows my mind how stories like that, especially like yours, just kind of come to fruition and what they, kind of the stories that they tell. And I think the one about being in the coffee shop, that is absolutely, I would have lost my, I would have lost it too. I mean, it just, I, it's those moments where you're not even, you're not even expecting it. And it, it just, it's just so wonderful and refreshing to hear you share these stories because I know that like for my diagnosis, like I kind of knew, and like, I've talked about this in the podcast before that I kind of knew when I got my diagnosis that it was like, I'm healthy. I go to college, like I do all of these things. And I kind of had this calling where I wanted to start this podcast. And for a long time, and I shared this in previous episodes, I was so scared of my diagnosis and not scared because of the quality of my life or having to do the medical stuff. I was used to that. I was scared to share my story. And I think that something just told me to share it and to bring awareness to rare disease. And Going off of all of that and sharing your story, how did you get, and on a lighter note, how did you get into social media? What kind of, how did Dr. Tommy Martin become a TikTok and Instagram (laughs) fame? Like what, like what's your story? Like how did you, did it just start off as videos and then you kind of attracted an audience? What just kind of, what's your journey? What's your story? Yeah, so honestly, um, It started in medical school. I was at St. George's University and I was meeting with 20 students a day about how to study, how to do well in school. And Phoebe eventually was like, Tommy, like you, like this is taking up all your time. Like you can't do this every day. Right. You you need to find a more efficient way to do this. Why don't don't you start a YouTube channel? So I decided to start a YouTube channel um, and I had an iPad mini. Um, that's what I made all of my content with, made my content, edited my content until I got like a thousand subscribers on YouTube. Um, but so, yeah, so that's kind of how it started. And then from there, I used YouTube and Instagram for a long time, um, making tons of content and honestly didn't have much growth, um, until 2019. So 2019, I had 10,000 followers on Instagram and maybe close to 10,000 on YouTube, maybe. Um, and then I watched a podcast by Gary V and Gary V made the comments. Like, if you're not on TikTok, you're wasting your time. Like, regardless of what you're trying to do, if you're trying to spread positivity message, make money, yeah. TikTok, you're wasting your time. And so I studied the app for two weeks, saw what videos did well, took notes on all of it, made a first video and it hit 500,000 views and I had 50,000 followers. Um, and then after a year I had over a million. And then after two years I had 2 million and, um, so yeah, that's kind of how it came about. Do you ever, that that's incredible. Do you ever get recognized? Like, and I know that being a doctor is a very 
hard profession, a very rewarding profession, but, and it's, I know that you're the, from what I've seen, you're the kind of person that keeps work and personal. Have you ever gotten noticed at any of the hospitals you've worked at, any of the doctor's office um, by like patients or people? Yeah. I mean, I think most of it is because like the medical field. So like at the hospital, it happens pretty often um, between like all the staff or patients. And then times um, most recently I was flying, uh, where were we going? We were flying to Arkansas for a wedding and this field hockey team recognized me. Um, but yeah, so a few times in airports or Disney, different things like that. Um, they'll either recognize me or recognize Oliver. Oliver's a little more unique. And so I think they usually recognize him first. Oh my God. He's going to be, he's going to rule the school one day. I swear. (laughs) I, I think it's just so interesting though, how, people and I really resonate what you said of kind of the iPad mini like I like videotape like I do these on like my spare time I do the episodes I have the green screen because my kitchen I have my like desk my new desk but my kitchen table's behind me and it's piled high my mom's doing some reorganizing and so it's piled high and I think it's just very interesting and very rewarding and unique how people kind of get their start where Mm -hmm. not everybody has and this is just a side tangent not everybody has 4k equipment and a lot of people especially influencer culture it has kind of opened this scope and spectrum of influencers who have full-time jobs who do it about their profession because four or five years ago influencers were mainstream people who were in Hollywood who were doing YouTube videos and now it's kind of opened up this world for people who like are in medical school who want to look up to doctors and who mm-hmm. I want to follow doctors who've already been there or people who want to break into the film industry or people like teacher talk like teachers on TikTok are like a big thing yeah. and do you think that um what's kind of your best advice for somebody who wants to follow kind of, I don't want to say full-time career in social media, but like a side gig in social media, they want to do it for fun. And I'm not talking about making it like a side career, but just doing it to make the content and kind of share what they know. What's your best advice to somebody who wants to, doesn't know where to begin, kind of wants to navigate it. Um, What does that look like to you? Yeah. My best piece of advice would be start with what you have. So whatever, phone, equipment, whatever it is that you have, start with that and make content um, about what you're passionate about and do it in a way to help others. And if you do that daily, you'll have success. Um, And I mean, people hate that that's like all I say, but honestly, it's as simple as that. If you be consistent and follow those things, you will have success. And it might, and I'm not going to say it's going to happen overnight. Like I have one friend that made over 800 videos before a video went viral and now he has like 10 million followers, you know? And so if, if you're willing to de- dedicate time and effort into it, um, you will have success. It just may not be immediate. That's exactly it. I have like 5,000 followers on a much lower scale. But what I've learned is that sometimes the videos you make, I made a video about my diagnosis back in 2020. I got 1.3 million. I thought it was crazy. And then I reposted the video at the end of 2020 or 2021, and it got 3.1 million views. (laughs) And I just like reshared it. But I had to turn off the comments and I will never forget this. I had to turn off the comments because people were calling me like, they were like, you're a faker, you're a liar. You don't know what you're talking about. And like, it was kind of one of those things you make a 10 second video. And if you slip once, people will catch it. So I thought that was very, very interesting. And my last question, this is kind of just a fun question. You said that your friend has 10 million followers. Have you gotten to meet any celebrities? Like who's the coolest person you met over social media? Oh, coolest person I've met over social media. Mm, that's a great question. Honestly, um, I guess it'd just be someone that I've looked up to for a long time, especially, um, you know, he went on a crazy weight loss journey. I actually just met him recently, but it's obese to beast. Um, cool. Yeah, he's a big YouTuber. And uh, I mean, he's big on Instagram and stuff as well. But he's just someone that is very real very authentic is 100% him, no matter what, regardless of what social media will think, what anybody else will think. And just someone that I've looked up to a lot. And um, it was pretty awesome to get to meet him and work out with him and stuff like that. Um, we were supposed to have a big doctor meetup with all the doctor, uh, doc fluencers or the doctor influencers. And uh, unfortunately that did not happen, but oh. 
here soon. We'll have a big meetup with everyone. Dockfluencers. That sounds like a fun time. And are they all of like different specialties, like beads, like heart, neuro? Because I think there's a big, um, I feel like there's kind of a big calling to the medical field right now. I feel like, because I've shared this on here before, but I wanted to be a nurse before I went into the film industry. Unfortunately, the math and science, it just didn't pan out. So that's why I kind of felt like I had a calling to this, but, um, you're in peds now. Are you a resident still? Are you attending? So I'm actually, so my specialty is kind of confusing. Um, but so I do, it's called MedPeds. And so what it is, it's two residencies combined into one. And so it's internal medicine and it's pediatrics in one specialty. So I technically do adult medicine and I do pediatric medicine. And I'm currently an attending um, a hospitalist at Beth Israel Deaconess taking care of adults um, and then at Boston Children's taking care of children. Um, so I work at both hospitals and split my time. Is it, um, is it one job or do you have two separate jobs or is it through the same program? Two separate jobs. Awesome. That is, that's incredible. I know my cousin, he works to, he works in two different hospitals too, as he's not medical school. He does something else, but I think it's probably so rewarding get to work with adults and children as well, because you kind of get to see like the whole, the whole bigger picture. And my last, last question for you, which I meant to ask earlier is, do you think having, being a parent who has gone through this journey with Oliver and who is continuing to go through this journey, do you feel more inclined and have a deeper understanding with your patients and their parents or their families because you went through a similar journey? And do you think, I don't want to say an advantage, but do you think, again, as I said, do you think you have a deeper understanding of these families and kind of push harder to find them and get them the care they need and the treatment and the diagnoses and all of that? 10,000%. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and it honestly makes me a little mad at the system, but like the amount of things you have to know, the paperwork you have to do, like the funding, like there's literally so much that I know that some of our patients wouldn't be able to find the material that they need to do it. Or some people, you know, in inner city may, may not have an education above ninth grade. Right. And so like, how are they supposed to get all these resources when my wife and I, who are two doctors had a hard time doing it, you know? And so like, yeah, my wife and I, I would say we'll fight tooth and nail as hard as we possibly can to help our patients because of what we've learned through going through it ourselves, I, I hear you. I see you because when I was a baby, we had to fight for the newborn screening law. My mom's not a doctor, but same thing. We had to fight tooth and nail to get the care we needed because when I was born in Connecticut, only eight, di- eight disorders were tested at birth. And because of the newborn screening law in Connecticut, which is after yours truly, it's now 30 and it's even more now, I think. So we had to do a lot of our own work and our own legwork, but that's all because my uncle was a state senator at the time. So we had the time and the resources to be able to legislate for that. And I think everything that you were doing, I'm so, so, so happy that you got to be here today. And then we finally got to this funny story, side note, before we wrap this up is that last year we were supposed to do this almost a year ago. And what had happened was, is I was working a job that was very high paced and high stressed. Well, I got a sty in my eye and I couldn't open it. Turns out I went to go get the sty drained. I had a sty inside of a sty inside of a sty. So I was like this for a week. Uh Aha. I was like, uh, and I still had to work and I was, it was absolutely bonkers. So I'm glad that I'm at a job that's not as high paced. I got yeah. my sty drained because it was crazy. The doctor's like, I rarely see this. So I'm kind of glad we got to do this now. And kind of, I'm very glad. I don't know why I said kind of, I'm so glad we got to do this now, now that you're established uh, in Massachusetts. And if you don't know, Dr. Tommy, he moved to Massachusetts from Arkansas recently, and I'm a native New Englander where we, it's four seasons in one day, Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> is like kind of like the staple. And what's kind of been, last, last, last question, what's kind of been the cult, has it been a culture shock moving to New England, being from the Midwest? I know things are just completely different out here than they are out in like the Midwest. Yeah, so I've been around a little bit just because, uh, you know, dating Phoebe before we got married, we'd come visit here. And so I, I was a little ready for it. But a big, the, some of the biggest things is just like in Arkansas, like 
you see someone on the street, you give them a hug and see how they're doing. Right. You, know, you do that here and people are like, uh, what's uh-huh. wrong with you on? Or like, what's wrong with you? Uh-huh. Um, so I'd say like, that's a big difference. And then otherwise, like, you know, we do Starbucks, y'all do Dunkin'. Um, yep. A lot more seafood out here. And when it got cold, like in September, I was like, what in the world uh-huh. is going on? And so um, a little bit of a culture shock, but I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. And I'm thankful to be up on the, or in the Northeast and, you know, close to you. So we'll be able to hopefully grab some lunch together sometime or meet each yes. other. Yes. That would be, oh my God, that would be absolutely wonderful. I'm only about two hours from Boston. Yeah. So that is absolutely wonderful. We're glad to have you here. I mean, another New Englander, I mean, oh my God, there's so much you have to do that you have to go to like, that you're now, I don't know if you've ever been, but like your Red Sox game and like all of that fun stuff. New yeah, England I haven't yet. Yeah, we, we, there's a still a lot we need to do. <laughs> there's a lot you need to do. But for now, this has been from one New Englander to a new New Englander. <laughs> this has been absolutely fantastic. I'm so excited. I finally got to share your story and Oliver's story. And it's just so inspiring. You're someone who's personally inspired me. So you got to meet obese to beast. I got to meet you finally in person. (laughs) So Dr. Tommy, thank you again. Keep doing what you're doing. And I cannot wait to post this. So for now, we'll be in touch. This was wonderful. And thank you for your time. I, I know how busy you are. Wasn't that an absolutely fabulous interview? I think that I have loved every single interview that I've done. I truly have. Last week, we had Ella Blasa. And then the week before that, we had Mr. Hustle. And I think that the reason that I'm so happy with these interviews and why I'm so happy leaving Tommy's interview, Dr. Tommy's, is because... I just keep getting so much good content and I'm learning so much more. And if you didn't hear, Tommy's son has Lamb Schaefer syndrome. And Lamb Schaefer syndrome, um, Tommy explained the statistics. I don't remember off of the top of my head, but it's a rare disease. And he has approached it with his wife with so much grace and so much positivity and openness to learn. And I think that's an important lesson for us all to learn everybody because when you get bad news or troubling news or news that isn't going to change your life in the best possible way, you ponder, you ask questions, you want to know more, you want to know why, you want to know how, you ask all of these questions. But why I'm so inspired by Tommy is because even though he had all of these questions, the way he presented himself through it all, and I'm sure there were hard days, and I'm sure there were things that he felt, but it was so inspiring to see the way that he shared about his son with happiness and kindness and just resilience and it just inspired me and I'm just so thankful that he answered my dm and that we could do this and honestly I I just loved the interview and I I'm so proud to call him someone that I can look up to I will looked up to him forever and speaking of things that just make me happy and that I'm happy to be happy about is that I want to share my pocket of peace for the day inspired inspired by Nabella Noor if you don't follow her at Nabella my pocket of peace for today is what something that I mentioned earlier I'm at a place in my life where a lot of my trouble and a lot of my worry and a lot of my anxiousness and a lot of my grief has kind of subsided. And there are days where I go through grief, especially losing my grandmother and other circumstances in my life. But I'm at a place of peace and tranquility and the cold air in Connecticut and the leaves changing and the sun and the apple cider and the apple donuts and the apple picking just makes me so happy. And I'm looking up at the sky. I actually moved my laptop towards the window so I could get better lighting. My desk is against the wall and I have not invested in a ring light yet, but that is besides the point. I'm just looking up at the skies and looking at the autumn, the autumn leaves and how much my life has subsided and how calming it has been and how October has been an abundance of blessings and Halloween is coming up and 
I just couldn't be more happy. I'm so happy that my podcast is growing and that I get to interview Dr. Tommy and Ello the week before and Mr. Hessel and just so many good things. So with that, I'm going to sign off. Please stay healthy, stay safe, get your vaccines with Dr. Jam. And most of all, be well. So for now, I'm Jonathan signing off and I'll see you next week with another very exciting guest. 